Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to the Climate Report for Thursday, August 25th, 2022. The Climate Report broadcasts and podcasts on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. Today's Climate Report covers top international climate news, then national news, state and local in that order, starting with the largest wind farm in Scotland coming online this week, plus turning wind turbine blades into gummy bears, as well as what's in the new U.S. climate bill for you, and California's expected mandate to go all EV in 2035. Lastly, we highlight a new groundbreaking report on the impact of climate change on the Sierra Nevada region. Please note, all Climate Report shows are archived at KVMR's podcast page for re-listening and sharing. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. Let's start off in Scotland, where they threw the switch on the largest offshore wind farm there. The Guardian had an interesting intro to their article on it, saying Steve Wilson was a little windswept after stepping off of a rocking boat in choppy North Sea waters. Wilson is the program director of Sea Green, Scotland's largest offshore wind farm, which just this week began producing power. Wilson had just sailed an hour out to sea on the east coast of Scotland with other local interested parties. There, they witnessed a technician hop aboard one of the first turbines to feed power back to the UK mainland. A drone operator on board protested about the windy conditions that made it tricky to send up the machine. Wilson laughed after landing safely back on shore. We did deliberately decide to build it somewhere windy. The $3 billion Sea Green project is located 17 miles off of the coast. The first turbine of 114 was connected to the electricity network in the early hours of Monday morning this week. Picture 114 wind turbines 17 miles out to sea. The project promises to generate over 1.1 billion watts of electricity. That's enough to power about a million homes, and that's in its first phase. That's equivalent to about 60% of Scotland's current offshore wind output. Its debut provides a rare bright spot for Britain's energy supply as gas shortages in Europe have threatened to spill over into blackouts in the UK this winter and even higher bills for consumers. However, the entire wind farm will not be fully operational until some point in the first half of next year. Ultimately, the developers hope the site will produce enough renewable electricity to power 1.6 million households. That alone would, in theory, cover two-thirds of Scottish households with this one wind farm alone. However, the electricity generated, which connects into the network in the mainland via substation, will be distributed around Great Britain and not just stay in Scotland. The turbines at the huge project have a maximum tip height. When the tallest blade is pointed vertically up, it is 613 feet above the ocean level. That's about twice the height of the Elizabeth Tower, which houses Big Ben. Picture the clock in Big Ben. Now picture something double that height. That is how large these are. While floating wind farms are planned for even further out to sea, 
This venture, Sea Green, will be the world's deepest fixed bottom wind farm. Its deepest foundation at the bottom of the ocean is due to be installed at almost 200 feet below sea level in December. Imagine being 20 stories below the top of the ocean and you're having to do a job to put concrete in a foundation at the bottom of the ocean that's going to hold a turbine that will be 613 feet above sea level and it's not supposed to fall over, but it's intentionally in an extremely windy area. Wilson said, this is a significant project that's very technologically innovative for the renewables industry. We're installing a wind farm at a very difficult site with complex rocky conditions. The construction involves what's called suction bucket technology for the foundations. The foundations were assembled nearby at the port of Nig. Again, this will be the world's deepest fixed bottom wind farm. Now keep in mind, it's been more than a decade since the rights to the seabed were granted by the Crown Estate, which manages the royal property portfolio. So even though this is what we need now, this process had to start 10 years ago, which gives you a sense of just how important and urgent it is to get renewable energy projects started now, because this is the decade that scientists say we need action. Wilson said the approval process has been slow going, with torrents of data and information required in the consent and permit process. He said that's a key focus for us in the future, trying to really reduce that time period quite significantly in order to support accelerating building offshore wind in Scotland and the UK. He adds that the energy security strategy issued in April by the UK shows that government agencies are starting to get aligned on it. So imagine you do have to make sure that you don't cut corners and go too fast because this is an extremely dangerous and important engineering feat. But at the same time, these types of projects need to move faster. Most notably, Sea Green's location just south of the oil and gas capital of Aberdeen is symbolic. Local cabbies and hotel owners in what's called the Granite City are hopeful that a shift to renewables can keep the region prosperous in the long term. Well, speaking of wind turbines, wind turbine blades in the future could be recycled into gummy bears, scientists say. Researchers have designed a composite resin made up of different materials for blades that can be broken back down then to make new products, including sweets. The next generation of wind turbine blades could be recycled into gummy bears at the end of their service, scientists have said. Researchers at Michigan State University have made a composite resin for wind blades by combining glass fibers with a plant-derived polymer and a synthetic one. So again, it's three different materials, glass, plant materials, plastic. Once the blades have reached the end of their lifespan, the materials can be broken down, separated, and recycled to make new products, including more turbine blades and chewy sweets. Wind power is one of the dominant forms of renewable energy. However, turbine blades, usually made of fiberglass, can be as long as half a football field and cause problems with disposal, with many being discarded in landfills when they reach the end of their use cycle. To combat the waste, researchers designed a new form of resin. They were able to digest the resin in an alkaline solution which produced 
potassium lactate, which can be purified and made into sweets and sports drinks. Said John Dorgan, one of the authors of the paper, we recovered food-grade potassium lactate from the used turbine blades and used it to make gummy bear candies, which I ate. The alkaline digestion also released what's called polymethylmethacrylate, or PMMA. That's a common acrylic material used in windows and car taillights. On eating gummy bears that are derived from a wind turbine, Dorgan says, quote, a carbon atom derived from a plant, like corn or grass, is no different from a carbon atom that came from a fossil fuel. It's all part of the global carbon cycle, and we've shown that we can go from biomass in the field to durable plastic materials and then back to foodstuffs. He added, the beauty of our resin system is that at the end of its use cycle, we can dissolve it, and that releases it from whatever composite matrix it's in so that it can be used over and over again in an infinite loop. That's the goal of the circular economy. Researchers presented their results on Tuesday at a meeting of the American Chemical Society. They plan to make some blades available for field testing. Well, heading back closer to home, we've done a lot of talking on the new Inflation Reduction Act, which was half designed to address the climate urgency. And we did talk in the last show about some of the dirty details that are required to make fossil fuel industries happy in order to get the bill passed through Joe Manchin. Well, we'd like to talk about some of the direct incentives that are available to you, the bright spots that are in it that provide tax credits and rebates to consumers in America. The important thing to note is that some of these are tax credits, which means you need to have a tax appetite in some cases, and that sometimes means that the benefit isn't captured until April 15th when filing taxes. Rebates, on the other hand, aren't related to taxes, but they are rebates, which means that they come after the purchase. So it's important for Americans to know that while there are a lot of great incentives for homeowners and property owners and citizens in general, in almost every case, there is still an expectation to pay the full upfront cost for items and then wait for the incentive afterwards. One notable exception is the new EV tax credit. Let's run through some of the incentives that are here for the American consumer. Because while research shows that this should make a big dent in carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions for the U.S. over the next decade, much of it won't come true unless people actually act on these incentives. So let's run some through some of these. Electric cars to solar panels, tax breaks, in Biden's climate law for Americans. Let's start with electric cars, which gets talked about a lot. We talked about last week. The new legislation provides a tax rebate of up to 75, it's a tax credit, tax rebate uh, of up to $7,500 for a new electric vehicle. The good news is that that can now be transferred directly to the car dealership at the point of purchase. So it can act as an upfront payment, reducing the upfront cost not having to wait until April 15th. It should be noted, I had a conversation just today with a car dealership in Auburn related to an EV, a used EV. I asked about this used EV tax credit. They had no idea it existed. They also hadn't heard that the tax credits can be transferred right to the dealer and off the upfront price. So if you're shopping for EVs, be prepared to educate your salespeople and financing folks. 
Now, the other good news for people interested in electric vehicles is that there is now a tax credit for used electric vehicles. $4,000 tax credit for a used EV, $7,500 for a new EV. And again, that can be transferred to the dealership if you buy it from a dealership at the point of purchase, reducing the upfront cost immediately. Now, it's uncertain how strong the take-up will be because the tax credit applies to cars made with parts in the U.S. or from countries that have a free trade agreement with the U.S., meaning that the leading suppliers of key materials like cobalt and lithium, which China and Russia are a part of, would be excluded. Ongoing supply chain woes also mean that the demand for EVs is currently outstripping supply, with many car makers having long waiting lists for models, while public charging infrastructure is still catching up in much of the rural parts of the country. So that's the electric vehicle, $7,500 for new, $4,000 for used. You can take it off the top of the dealership as long as they know about it. Next, solar panels. We're going to start from bigger ticket item down to the smaller ticket item. And folks should know that when it comes to both EVs and solar panels, for the majority of people purchasing both of those items, they are being financed. So they're broken down into monthly payments that are usually the same or lower than either an existing gas car or utility payments. So these tax credits help make the numbers even better. Solar panels. Anyone who wants to install solar panels on their property can now get a 30% tax credit. It was at 26% this year. It was going to drop to 22% next year and then go away. Instead, it's going back up to 30%, which is retroactive for anyone that has installed this year and was expecting only a 26% tax credit. It now jumps up to 30%, and they've extended it for 12 years. Furthermore, people who use home-based batteries for energy storage can also access this tax credit. It used to be if you wanted to get the tax credit for batteries, you had to roll it into your solar contract. But now you can actually just buy plain old batteries by themselves with or without solar and the 30% tax credit would apply. Next, then, there are a lot of incentives for home appliances because the big push in order to make a dent in our emissions is to electrify as much as possible with green energy. So some of the biggest changes initiated by the climate bill are likely to be found in the homes of Americans with up to $14,000 in rebates and tax credits available to even low- and middle-income households to make their dwellings greener and more efficient. So that's adding up all of the possible rebates and tax credits for your home together, $14,000 in order to try and make these transitions happen. First, there will be an $8,000 rebate, which will be available to help install heat pumps, which are efficient electrical devices that both heat and cool homes. So instead of using fossil fuels to heat your home, you can use electricity with a heat pump, $8,000 rebate to help with that. Then when it comes to water heating, electrifying water heating, there's a further $1,750 rebate for water heating. Then there is a slightly smaller tax break that can be applied for purchases of clothes dryers or an electric cooktop, such as high-efficient induction stovetops. There are tax credits and rebates for those appliances. Then there are tax credits that cover 30% of the cost of home improvements that will reduce heat leakage, such as upgraded windows and doors. When you think of your home, you've got walls, but the windows and doors are where heat 
escapes. Those are the openings in the walls. And there's a tax credit that will cut the cost of improving windows and doors. The tax credit covers 30%. Now then when it comes to insulating the walls themselves to make sure that they don't leak heat, there's a $1,600 rebate to insulate and seal your house. So to recap, we're covering heat pumps, heating your water, so heating and cooling your home, heating your water, drying your clothes, cooking your food, upgrading your windows and doors, insulating your house, all of that, there is more than $10,000 worth of incentives now available for homeowners to get on it. Now, lastly, for a lot of people, they realize that putting so much of electricity demand on your home and switching away from fossil fuels to an all-electric home could mean that your home wiring and your utility service panel might need an upgrade. Not to worry, they covered that too. There is now a $2,500 tax break for improvements to cover electrical wiring. Household savings will be reflected in lower monthly energy bills, reduced bill volatility, and a lessening of disproportionately high energy burdens within disadvantaged communities. Well, next, let's talk about the looming California regulation that's expected to be voted in today that would ban the sales of gasoline-powered cars in California by 2035. This could be huge and flip the rest of the country. Well, fortunately, we waited long enough to record today's show in order to make it past the California Air Resources Board vote that everyone has been waiting for. It is now official California has banned the sale of new gas-powered cars by the year 2035. Now the real work begins. This is fresh news, and one of the best reports has come out of the Los Angeles Times. Citing an urgent need to address climate change while cutting back on air pollution, the California Air Resources Board, also known as CARB, voted just now to require all new cars and light trucks sold by 2035 to be what are called zero emission vehicles. That happened just today, Thursday, August 25th. The move marks a historic turn in the decades-long battle to curb motor vehicle pollution, a momentous shift for consumers, industry, the economy, and the environment. California has led the nation in auto emissions regulation since CARB was created in 1966 to combat the toxic yellow-brown smog that hung over Los Angeles. The state's large population meant that national automakers could not ignore the state's mandates. Congress gave California permission to set its own rules under the Federal Air Quality Act that same year in 1966. California's emissions and fuel efficiency rules have thus been adopted by more than a dozen other states. So oftentimes, what lags at the federal level in policy, California leads and then the rest of the nation follows suit. The new mandate forces automakers to slowly phase out gasoline and diesel cars over the next decade or so, as well as sport utility vehicles, minivans, and pickup trucks in favor of cleaner versions powered by batteries or fuel cells. If automakers fall short, they could be charged $20,000 per non-complying car, according to CARB. And if consumers don't go along, well, that could cause problems, but state officials think they will, and the trend line lends confidence. Electric cars are rapidly gaining popularity in California. Just a decade ago, less than 2% of new vehicles sold were electric. 
That grew to 7% by 2018, and last year, 12%. But demand has continued to surge, and now 16% of new cars sold in California are plug-in vehicles, either battery electric, plug-in hybrid, and a smattering of cars that run on hydrogen fuel cells. There are now more than 1 million zero-emission vehicles registered just in California alone, according to CARB. That is almost half of our country's total. Once considered little more than golf carts with paltry range, electric cars can now travel several hundred miles on a single charge in models that range from small commuter cars to luxury vehicles to SUVs, pickup trucks, and even muscle cars. Under the new rules, 35% of new cars in California must be zero emission by 2026. That's in four short years. By 2030, at the end of the decade, two-thirds of new cars in California sold must be zero emission. And by 2035, the goal is 100%. Now, keep in mind, people could still buy internal combustion cars from another state. It's perfectly legal to buy them in the other 49 states and bring them here. It is also perfectly legal to buy and sell used internal combustion cars, so they won't be going anywhere on the used market or new market in other states. But many states, including most of California's neighbors, tend to follow our lead on vehicle emissions policy and are considering similar mandates of their own. So again, owners of internal combustion cars can continue to drive them after 2035. It will still be legal to buy and sell used fossil fuel cars and light trucks. And the mandate doesn't cover all of highway transportation either. Heavy trucks that burn diesel fuel will have an extra 10 years before they're banned. And a proposed zero emission mandate for heavy trucks to hit 100% wouldn't happen until 2045. And even then, the zero emission vehicle mandate includes loopholes for vehicles that are not actually zero emission. Up to 20% of a car maker's new car sales can be plug-in hybrids, which have both electric motors and gas engines and still count as zero emission as long as the minimum battery range is 50 miles or more. Now, keep in mind, the state of California uses zero emission as shorthand pertaining to the cars themselves as they move along the highways they won't emit. But, as has been discussed, recharging the batteries may well emit significant greenhouse gases depending on what's generating the electricity. It could be coal, oil, and natural gas on the dirtier side, solar, wind, or hydropower on the cleaner. Now, today... 40% of energy generated for use by Californians is zero carbon. But the percent does vary by locality. For example, while coal accounts for a tiny fraction of the state's total power mix in California, for example, the city of Anaheim's electricity is produced 46% by burning coal. So the state hardly touches coal, but if you go to Anaheim, they run off of half coal power. Still, CARB's vote makes a watershed in climate change policy. Governor Newsom ordered action two years ago and instructed CARB to create a detailed plan after several public hearings and testimony from hundreds of people and companies. Today's vote makes it official state policy. Now, the United States Environmental Protection Agency must still grant the state a waiver to set its own automobile emissions policies under the rules of the Federal Clean Air Act, but that's likely a slam dunk under the current Biden administration. 
According to air quality officials, the new regulations would reduce greenhouse gas emissions from cars in California by more than 50% by the year 2040, compared with if no action were taken. Tailpipe emissions are the leading source of carbon dioxide in California and accounted for about 40% of our state's greenhouse gas emissions in 2019. Additionally, as as uh, as a reduction of carbon dioxide is a big goal, state officials say the plan would also cut smog-forming nitrogen oxides. They estimate this rule will result in over 1,400 fewer deaths from heart disease and will help Californians avoid more than 700 emergency room visits for asthma. Automakers have taken different positions on the mandate, ranging from enthusiastic to lukewarm to outright opposition. Ford, which recently introduced its F-150 Lightning all-electric pickup truck, has worked closely with CARB. In an official statement, the automaker said that combating climate change is a strategic priority and that the company is proud of their partnership with California for stronger vehicle emission standards forged during a time when climate action was under attack. Toyota, which had placed big bets on its hybrid cars and lags on pure electric development, relented on its opposition and just earlier this week sent CARB a letter recognizing it has the authority to set vehicle emission standards. Previously, Toyota as a company had sided with the Trump administration on vehicle emissions issues. Some environmental groups say this new mandate doesn't go far enough, though. Regina Sue, a senior associate attorney for Earth Justice, noted that countries including Norway and the Netherlands have much more ambitious timelines, and even Washington State has a plan to phase out new gas cars by 2030. Sue said the ramp that we see is not as stringent as it could be. Based on automakers' own projections, this rule is not that ambitious. It's not certain, however. Supply chain snags and shortages of critical battery materials, such as lithium and cobalt, have cut back EV availability while boosting purchase price. And as EV costs remain slightly higher than their gas-comparable counterparts, politicians are feeling pressure to offer incentives. The new $369 billion climate package recently passed by Congress contains a significant increase in EV subsidies, including novel incentives on used cars, as we already touched on. And then, of course, charging is another issue. While homeowners can install their own EV charger in a garage, most people who live in apartment buildings and condos don't have that option. The state plans to require multifamily housing landlords to provide some way to charge electric cars, but the details are still being worked out. And last year's federal infrastructure legislation included billions of dollars for public fast chargers to be installed at regular intervals on interstate highways every 50 miles. Also, as part of the California mandate, the state will require specific levels of warranty protection for EV batteries and related components. That's intended to not only protect new car buyers, but also help ensure that reliable used EVs will become available. They understood that not everyone can buy a new car, pointing out that several existing state programs offer financial help for lower-income customers to buy EVs. Brian Moss is the president of the California New Car Dealers Association, which represents more than 1,200 franchise new car and truck dealer members, and he said their organization is all-in on the transition to zero-emission vehicles. He said, we just want to make sure that as we proceed along this path, we're all working together to answer all these questions. 
The biggest challenge could be customer acceptance at the 100% level. What happens if automakers can't coax enough customers to buy? Said Jennifer Gress, head of the Sustainable Transportation and Communities Division at CARB, she said, we always reserve the right to amend the regulations at any point. Well, with this exciting new announcement, we decided to focus primarily with ending our show on this new California news. And we're going to save our focus for the Sierra Nevada Regional Climate Vulnerability Assessment for our next show. So you can tune in to the second Thursday in September at 630. And the next climate report is going to tell us all about this interesting new report. What are the impacts and what do we need to pay attention to in the Sierra Nevada? This is a report put out by the Sierra Climate Adaption and Mitigation Partnership, which is part of the Sierra Business Council. So look forward to that on our next climate report. That will be our entire focus because there is a wealth of information. Well, that's all for today's climate report broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For daily news headlines in between broadcasts, including heaps of good news and tips, there is a climate report social media page. And as always, today's show will be archived and posted to the KVMR website's podcast page for sharing or re-listening. For questions or comments, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org.